Luke eleven twenty nine to thirty two. Luke eleven twenty nine. And as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, after the Lord had explained in the previous paragraph, verses 27 and 28, that those who are blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it, he now gives an example of two individuals, that is Jonah and the Ninevites, and then the queen of the south and Solomon, these individuals who either went a great distance to preach the gospel and foreigners heard it, or a foreigner came from a great distance to Israel, to Solomon, the queen did, in order to hear the truth of the gospel. Foreigners, non-Israelites, they hear the gospel and they believe the gospel. That's an example that Jesus gives here. It was intended for Israel initially to receive it, hear it, throughout many generations, and some of them did, but the vast majority of them did not. Well, now it is time for the gospel to be propelled from Israel, from the time of Christ, after his death and resurrection and ascension, for it to be propelled and proclaimed throughout all the nations. And this is an example that Jesus gives. But it requires Israel to reject it first. Because once they reject it, then that becomes the springboard for it to go elsewhere. And notice in verse 29, Jesus is addressing this kind of rejection. Verse 29 says, As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It's a wicked generation. They should have believed Jesus, the Son of God, was right there. He was preaching. He was performing miracles. He was sent from heaven. The Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. He manifested true righteousness and holiness. He was not one who deferred to men. He saw through men and he preached the truth whenever he needed to preach the truth, whether in a private setting, in a small group, in a large crowd, whatever he needed to say, he would say it. People knew he lived righteously. He was not a wicked man. Yet the people didn't believe. That's why he calls, he says it to the crowds, to the multitudes of people following him. He says, this is a wicked generation. Jesus sometimes tells the crowds what they really need to hear. At sometimes he will call them sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. At other times they are hungry and he feeds them. But at other times he wants the crowds to know it's not well and dandy, it's not good, it's not fine, everything isn't swell unless you repent unless you believe in the gospel, it's not good enough for you to just follow me and get what all treats I give you whenever I feed you or whenever I heal you. It's not enough for that to happen. You actually have to believe. So Jesus, on occasion, he rebuffs and he confronts the crowds, the multitudes. 
He has done so a couple of other times in Luke. For example, Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8 and verse 4, it says, And when a great multitude were coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. Then he announces this parable of the sower. Well, why does he present a parable, an enigmatic way of presenting the gospel? Why doesn't he just say it straight to them? Why does he tell the great multitudes a parable? We think parables are for the sake of explanation and clarification, but the text says otherwise. Verse 9, Luke 8, verse 9. And his disciples, a smaller group, began questioning him as to what this parable might be. And he said, To you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. He speaks in parables to the great multitudes because God does not want them to see, and he does not want them to understand, hear and understand. He doesn't want that to happen. That's why he speaks in parables without an explanation. He gives privately to his own disciples an explanation to make sure that they understand. That is, the Word of God plus the Spirit of God plus the Son of God right there as the best interpreter of everything he says. He has given all of that to his close disciples, but he hasn't given the multitudes that. He gives them parables. Another example we find is in chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 Verse 54, 12.54 says, And he was also saying to the multitudes, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, It will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites! You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative, judge what is right. See, they have knowledge of weather patterns, but they have no knowledge of spiritual patterns. And he calls them hypocrites. And he's saying this to the multitudes, not just to certain individuals, but to the multitudes. He's telling them, you better shape up. You better practice discernment. You, you better tighten your belts. You better figure out what I'm saying and what all of my disciples are saying when they go around and preach and teach to you. You better know what it means and believe it. Otherwise, you will be hypocrites. So, in Luke 11, when he tells the crowds, this generation is a wicked generation. Among the people in the crowds, inevitably there were scribes and Pharisees, there were Sadducees, and there were Herodians, there were Zealots. There were all kinds of fragments and, and schisms within Judaism and within the people of Israel present in the crowds. There would have been priests, chief priests, there would have been all kinds of people in the crowds, including the general population. They all would have been there. In fact, we know from the parallel account in Matthew chapter 12, 38 to 42, that that was the case. The parallel account actually mentions a couple of those groups in Matthew 12, 38 to 42. So, another observation we could make here is Jesus often does confront the religious officials. 
because they who know what is in the Bible, they should know better, and they should be teaching the people better, and they should be living better, but they don't. In fact, they exploit the people because the people are generally ignorant of what is in the Bible. They exploit the people. They take advantage of them. They will do whatever it takes to twist their arms and manipulate them to get their own way. They are tyrants, these religious officials. So included in this wicked generation are them, are, the, are those religious authorities that he is confronting. We notice by this Jesus' approach to making people understand the truth. That in a crowd of people, some of the people should know better, but they don't do better. Jesus exposes them. He draws them out and he exposes them so that the rest of the people can figure out who is on God's side and who is on Satan's side. That's why he says this generation is a wicked generation because he's also including them. We notice in Luke 13, Luke 13, verse 17, we have religious authorities present and we have the common people present. And Jesus explains why he healed on the Sabbath. And after he does this, after he explains and refutes the contention of his enemies, it says in Luke 13, 17, and as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire multitude was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Jesus publicly humiliated his opponents so that the people who are either ignorant, they don't know any better, or they are confused, they, they see Jesus talking and then they see his opponents talking and they don't know who to believe, so they, there needs to be a public exchange, a public debate, some kind of interchange between what's actually going on so that they can understand who is logical, who is biblical, who has the right authority. And Jesus does that in front of everybody. He humiliates his opponents to show the people who the right person is to follow, the right way is to follow. And that's what he's doing as well in Luke 11, announcing that they are a wicked generation. Furthermore, on this issue of being a wicked generation, elsewhere he calls the generation uh, an evil and adulterous generation. They are evil and adulterous or wicked generation. We should not imagine that only Jesus' generation was a wicked generation. Are we any better than those people? We have a human nature just like they have a human nature, right? We are sinners just like they were sinners, correct? We are all descended from Adam and Eve, correct? And, and then also through Noah and his sons. We're all descendants that way, right? So why would we think that our nature is any better than theirs? Our nature is not any better than theirs. As well, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation has numerous examples of wicked people and wicked generations. Huge populations, huge nations that are wicked to show us by many, many examples that we are no better than they. So we have to ask ourselves, when Jesus says this generation is a wicked generation, are we also wicked or are we righteous? And if we're righteous, we're only righteous because we 
have repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Greek. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21 says that that is the requirement for Jew and Greek, repentance and faith in Christ. Then we will be a righteous generation. We will be lights in the world. Now, why is it in this instance that he calls them a wicked generation? He says, it seeks for a sign. It seeks for a sign. The wicked generation seeks for a sign. A sign in the Bible, Luke eleven twenty nine. a sign in the Bible is a miracle that signifies a greater truth. It, just like signs are today, right? A stop sign signifies the greater truth that you better stop. Or a stop light is a light that tells you you better stop. You better do the reality that that light signifies. And if you don't, you'll be in danger. In the same way in the Bible. Miracles are presented as signs of a greater spiritual reality, a greater spiritual truth that we better understand, otherwise the sign is useless if we don't understand the true significance, the reality that is beyond the sign. Well, that is the purpose of a sign or a miracle. But he says here, a wicked generation seeks for a sign. Why does he say a wicked generation seeks for a sign? He does this as well in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 1 to 4. Matthew 16, 1 to 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and, testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. He repeats how they should know better, and calls them evil and adulterous, and he says, no sign's going to be given you. I'm not going to give you any sign, any ultimate miracle, except the sign of Jonah. Except that sign, I'm not going to give you any other sign, which we know he explains in Luke 11. He explains this sign of Jonah. Another example of them being wicked and asking for a sign is John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 13, 13 to 22. John 2, 13 to 22. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. 
and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. There too, Jesus confronts them and they challenge him and say, what sign do you show to us? And the sign he gives is his death and resurrection, which is similar to the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah example. But still, what is it that is behind this demand for a sign? What is it behind the demand for a sign that Jesus rebuffs, that Jesus challenges and throws back into their face? What's wrong with it? We'll see. Exodus chapter 7, Exodus chapter 7, verse 9. Exodus 7, verse 9. In this point in Exodus, Moses has already presented himself with miracles to Pharaoh, personal miracles in the presence of Pharaoh, not national widespread miracles like the ten plagues, but personal miracles. He's already presented miracles and he has called on Pharaoh to release the people of Israel so that they might go to the land of Canaan. But it says in Exodus 7, we'll start at verse 8. Exodus 7, 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. Now, from our recollection of Pharaoh, was Pharaoh a gentle, humble, godly, righteous man? No, he was not. So this man, who had seen occultic miracles, because he had sorcerers, he had magicians, right? He had seen that in his life. He's just saying, if you think you are somebody, Moses, then show me a sign. Show me a miracle. Prove yourself to me. Does he really want to believe? No. He wants to throw his skepticism on Moses and Aaron and try to humiliate them, expose them and mock them. That's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to believe. So he's asking for a sign not to believe, but to cover his unbelief. He's using it as a subterfuge to cover his unbelief, to hide and smother his unbelief so that that's not the focus of attention. The focus, he throws it back on Moses and Aaron instead of focusing on his own unbelief. That's why he asked for a sign. Now, another example is Luke 11. Luke 11, Luke 11 and verse 16. Luke eleven sixteen. We pick it up actually in verse 14 because Jesus was casting out a demon and it was dumb or mute, uh, making the person unable to speak. And it came about that when the demon had gone out, the dumb man spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They're accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Satan. Now, what did Jesus just perform? Did he not perform a miracle? Yes. But notice, verse 16, And others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. They just saw a miracle, and they're wanting another miracle from heaven, as though the one that he just performed was not from heaven, that it came from hell, from Satan. No, it didn't. It came from heaven. 
This is the skepticism. This is why Jesus pushes back on them when they ask for a sign and say, I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to just cater to your fickle demands. Wait for the ultimate one, which is a testimony to the whole world of who I am. Wait for the death and resurrection of Christ. And then finally, one more example of this skeptical, unbelieving insistence on a sign is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. 1 Corinthians 1, 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness. See there? The Jews ask for signs to cover their unbelief and Greeks search for wisdom to cover their unbelief. Isn't that what they did in Acts 17? They had this place in Athens called the Areopagus so that they could share new ideas, you know, to be tickled by their fickle imaginations for new ideas, new wisdom, the the newest, latest, and brilliant scholar or religious fanatic, come up and and say something. We like to be amused that way. We want to learn that way. That's when Paul went up and preached the true gospel because they were seeking for wisdom. Not God's wisdom, just human wisdom, inventive wisdom, fabrications. They were amused by that and entertained by that. They did that to cover their unbelief. They would not pursue the true God. They would pursue false gods by their search for wisdom. Jews' signs and Greeks' wisdom, all as coverings for unbelief. This is why Jesus says to them, no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah. Back in Luke eleven twenty nine, The sign of Jonah. Well, what happened to Jonah? In the book of Jonah, in the Old Testament, he's one of the, of the 12 prophets in the book of the 12 prophets, towards the end of the Old Testament. In the book of Jonah, Jonah was commissioned by the Lord to preach to a foreign city called Nineveh, the Ninevites. And at that time, just as there has been throughout much of history, often cities and major cities had their own nation-state, had their own kings. And that was the case in Nineveh. God commissioned him to go preach to Nineveh, a foreign city hundreds of miles away in the land of Mesopotamia, in northern Mesopotamia. So he initially rejected that. He disobeyed God. He went on board a ship. He went to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, in the city of Joppa, a port city. He got on a boat. He paid the fare. He paid money to disobey God. Notice, he paid the fare to get on a boat to disobey God. He went away. And then suddenly there was a miraculous storm at sea. Suddenly, God hurled a storm on sea to trouble all the sailors, the pagan sailors who worshipped other gods, and also Jonah. Jonah was fast asleep in the hold of the ship. And then the sailors are scrambling. They wake him up. And Jonah informs them that he's fleeing from the Lord. And they say, how could you do that? And put us all in jeopardy. And then Jonah said, well, if you throw me overboard, the sea will become calm. They were reluctant, but finally they did. And they prayed to God and they said, oh Lord, do not put innocent blood on our hands. Don't hold us guilty if we throw him overboard and he dies. So don't hold us guilty. They throw him overboard and he's drowning. A fish comes, a huge fish 
to swallow him up. And then he's in that fish for three days and three nights. Then the fish, by God's command, comes back to, to shore, vomits him onto the dry land, and he goes on his way. Eventually he makes it to Nineveh. And there he preaches to the Ninevites. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But it didn't take them 40 days to repent. They repented and believed in the gospel that Jonah preached. And then God did not overthrow the city. He did not destroy it. And he instead showed compassion towards them. And Jonah said, I knew you were going to do this, for you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. I knew you were going to do this. If I went and preached and they repented, I knew you were going to forgive them. And he didn't like that. He didn't want that. And at the end of that book, God says to Jonah, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more, more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left, and many animals? Shouldn't I have compassion on people if they repent and believe the gospel? Shouldn't I have compassion? That's the lesson that Jonah preached. But we see here that Jesus says that what Jonah experienced in the fish was a sign. Was a sign. And also in Matthew 16, a sign to the Ninevites. That means that when Jonah was preaching to them, he was explaining to them what actually happened to him and how that signifies the coming day of Christ when he would die and rise again on the third day for the forgiveness of sins. So you Ninevites, you must believe in the gospel that is coming ahead. Jesus, the Son of God, will come. He will die on the cross. He'll be buried for three days and then rise on the third day. And I am a sign of that. I know, I saw, I, I know the miracle that happened. And if they had asked, when we don't know if they had asked, but the sailors could have testified. Other people could have testified who knew that Jonah was fleeing from the Lord. They all could have testified and been witnesses of the fact that Jonah fled. He was swallowed by the fish. The fish three days later vomits him on dry land and he was um, alive. And then he went and preached to the Ninevites. All of that would have been testimony, could have been testimony. The Ninevites believed. But, ironically, the people who are right there in front of Jesus don't believe. The vast majority of them don't believe. The Ninevites believed without seeing Jesus face to face, but his contemporaries would not believe even though they saw Jesus face to face, saw all of his miracles, saw his teaching, saw his life, Everything, they wouldn't believe. That's why they are a wicked generation. And in fact, verse 30. Verse 30 and 32. We'll read 30 and 32, they go together. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He says, just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, the Son of Man, Jesus, is assigned to this generation. Well, wait a minute. Now we have to bridge the gap again. Jonah was a sign of the coming of Christ. Now Christ is a sign of something more. What is the something more? The something more is verse 32. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented. 
at the preaching of Jonah, and something greater than Jonah is here. This is why it says in Acts chapter 17, the following, Acts 17, 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What does the resurrection of Christ signify? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? It signifies many things, but what is the future significance of it? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead shows he's going to be the judge of the world and you better repent and be prepared for that day of judgment. The Ninevites repented and prepared for that day of judgment, but Jesus' contemporaries would not repent, at least the vast majority of them, would not repent to prepare for the day of judgment. So when Jesus dies and rises again, that was a sign to his own generation that there will certainly be a day of judgment and Jesus will be the judge condemning them all along with the Ninevites, as well with the Queen of the South. And that takes us back to Luke 11.31. Luke 11.31. The Queen of the South also repented. The Queen of the South shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. It says Queen of the South. If you read the account in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, 1 Kings 10, 1 to 13, it calls her there the Queen of Sheba. There was a nation south of Israel called Sheba. Not directly south, not immediately south, but of south of Israel. Either, the scholarship is in disagreement with this, either it's in Arabia, southern Arabia, or it is a place in northeastern um, Africa, south of Egypt, in northeastern Africa. One of those two places, wherever it was, it was many, many miles away. And because it was south of Israel, south of Israel, the land of Canaan, this text, Luke 11.31, calls her the Queen of the South. Or 1 Kings 10, the name of the country was Sheba, S-H-E-B-A, the Queen of Sheba. Well, she came from a great distance. She heard of Solomon's wisdom. And what was his wisdom? The, his wisdom was preaching Christ. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. You see, Jews seek for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But the true wisdom of God, the true miracle, ultimate miracle of God is Christ himself. Christ. So when she came and heard the wisdom of Solomon, Solomon told her many things. He answered all her questions. She was amazed. And she saw the way that his kingdom was run. And her breath left her. And she said, the half was not told me. And she went away giving many, many gifts, many lavish gifts, as, even as much as uh, millions upon millions of dollars of gold perhaps as much as $250 million of gold she gave to him. And she went back to her home country, rejoicing in what she had learned from Solomon. And what she learned was not just how to grow plants better, how to grow spices better, 
how to acquire horses and peacocks better, how, how to accumulate gold and build a nice palace and a wonderful temple to your gods. Not like that. No, that was not the thing that Solomon taught her. He didn't teach her those things. He was teaching her spiritual truths. We know that for sure because of Luke eleven thirty one, and as well the parallel in Matthew 12. Because it says here, she will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment, that's the day of judgment, and condemn them. She can only condemn them if she is righteous, if she's a believer, if she repented of her sins, if she believed in the gospel of Christ. Only then can she rise up and condemn the wicked who refuse to repent of their sins. She'll condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth, a figure of speech saying from a great distance. Ends of the earth, remote parts of the earth, from a great distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The wickedness and the unbelief of Jesus' generation was more egregious than any previous generation because they personally had Jesus there. That's why he says twice, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. If Jesus is presented, whoever it is, whether in person or not, Jesus is there or not, we should believe it. They didn't believe it, and that's why they will be punished on the Day of Judgment. Let's see how the Scriptures, not only in this place, as we've just learned, the Ninevites and the Queen of the South will judge the wicked on the Day of Judgment, but there are other Scriptures that teach this truth. This, this is a novelty to many people. We as Christians have not, been heard, uh, have not heard this or have not been taught this, this teaching that we as believers will actually have a role in pronouncing a condemnation upon the unbelievers on the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Not only are we going to judge the world, it says the saints will judge the world. And we're a saint or a holy one only because we are declared righteous in Christ. And not only are we judging the world, but we're judging angels, fallen angels, demons, including Satan. That's why it says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Will soon crush Satan under your feet. When Christ returns, we will participate on the day of judgment. He, of course, is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nevertheless, he calls us into his company in order for us to also participate in condemning the wicked world. And as it says in Romans sixteen twenty, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, that is a compilation or a conflation of two passages. Genesis 3.15, he shall crush you on the head. It says in Genesis 3.15. Also, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi 4 verses 1 to 3 includes us. It, it, it's Jesus and us. 
in Malachi 4, verses 1 to 3. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But as for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet, on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. He describes the day coming, the coming day of judgment, burning like a furnace. Even Jesus and John the Baptist described the day of judgment like fiery furnace, right? And he says in verse 1, all arrogant and evil people will be like chaff, chaff before the wind and chaff in the midst of the fire. And the fire will set them ablaze. And nothing's going to be left of them. And verse 2, But you who fear my name, which is a biblical phrase that describes we who repent of our sins and believe in the gospel, the Son of Righteousness, that's a metaphor for Christ. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So we will be a part of the healing of the wings of the Son. All metaphors, spiritual metaphors, The righteousness of Christ is applied to us. We had a fatal disease, a cancerous disease, spiritual cancer, and Jesus heals us of that, and we take refuge in his wings. And then he describes us as calves. Calves that have been in their stall and not able to be released and to flex their legs, and to skip about and run about, that's the way we will be. In a sense, we are cooped up and we are caged in this world until God releases us to exercise our feet to tread on the ground. So who's the ground on which we will tread? Verse 3 says, You will tread down the wicked, for they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts will tread them down, the wicked. A metaphor of judgment that we execute on the wicked on the day of judgment. This is in keeping with what Jesus said in Luke 11. The Ninevites, the Queen of the South, and all the saints throughout all history will participate in doing this, a privilege that Jesus gives us. Not that we earn it, not that we deserve it, but by His grace, He makes us a part of that judgment on that day. Well, what should we do then? Never, ever be skeptical of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the promises of God. Always believe them. Always seek to understand them. Give your whole heart and life and devotion to the Word of truth, the Gospel of Christ, and the person of Christ. Always. Always. And warn people. Warn people that they cannot play with the gospel. A lot of people like to play and make light of and be superficial with their religion. They like to dabble in it a little bit, just enough to soothe their conscience, and then walk away and live like the world, live like the devil. They like to party hardy and do whatever they want to do. They should not do that. And we, 
we who know the truth, we should tell them about it. We should tell them about Christ and the need for them to repent and believe in him. Let's do that. Let's be more dedicated to doing that and praying for the people that they might do that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.